if you're relatively new here, you may not know how our kind of preaching calendar works. We kind of have a, a bit of a calendar we follow. And part of what we do that not everyone is used to is we follow what's called the high holidays, uh, which means we celebrate Advent and Lent, which a lot of evangelicals don't really celebrate. And Lent is kind of a big one. It's, it's 46, we- uh, not 46 weeks, 46 days, uh, about six weeks. And it's this season where um, we kind of face the darkness. We kind of deal with our brokenness, with the brokenness of the world, um, our own mortality. And we, we spend about six weeks kind of facing, you know, a lot of times in church we have uh, this tendency to be cheerleaders and, you know, keep your head up, do you know, God loves you. We, and we're really upbeat all the time. And life doesn't always follow that pattern. Sometimes things are down. Sometimes we have to own that things are hard and things aren't always great. And so we, we kind of intentionally spend Lent doing that. Um, we usually encourage um, a fast of some sort. Um, classically, the church has fasted during Lent. Um, that's obviously your choice. But we kick it off with Ash Wednesday. I can't remember the date of Ash Wednesday, but we will have an Ash Wednesday service. It's kind of cool. If you've never celebrated Ash Wednesday before, I highly recommend you come. It's kind of a come-and-go service. It's kind of a meditative experience. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty powerful. So please block that out. I'll get the dates out here soon. February 26th, okay, is Ash Wednesday. So it'll be right at the end of this series. And then during Lent, um, we preach from the lectionary. It's this, uh, the Book of Common Prayer. It kind of breaks down passages for each week. Uh, a lot of the, the kind of more liturgical high churches follow the lectionary, so they preach on the set passage every week. So during Advent and Lent, we like to do that. We preach from the lectionary. It kind of sinks us in with huge you know, mass amounts of the church who are teaching on that same passage that same week, which is kind of fun. I study it fresh for our, for our congregation, and then we kind of go through that together. But it kind of give, puts us on the same page as, as a big mass amount of the church. So it's kind of fun to sink in with the church at large for Advent and Lent. And then from Lent to Advent, which is like 30 weeks or so, we usually do a big study. We settle in for a while and we do a big book study or a, a, a bigger study through the summer. Well, that always leaves this funny little window between Advent and Lent. It's usually about somewhere between six and eight weeks. And, and this year I got four more weeks between we just did our money series and I got four more weeks before Lent starts. And so I was kind of had, I honestly went into this week having absolutely no idea what we were going to talk about for the next four weeks. I didn't even know what I was going to preach on this week um, until about Wednesday. We have about four weeks and I thought what we would do, I don't know if you guys, if you were here last week, you might remember that we, I didn't even preach in February. We had guest preachers all month as I kind of took some time to gear up for Lent, and we started the demo on this building, honestly, so I I was kind of spending that time, instead of doing sermon prep, doing electrical and stuff in here, which was cool to get it started, but we spent last last kind of January, February, talking about our why. I don't know if you guys remember this. We talked about the why of the church. Church isn't always good at doing this. We're really good at talking about our what, what we do. And we've got our ministries, and we do this, and we do women's ministry, we do women's ministry, we do youth. We, we talk about our what, but we don't always clearly identify our why. We talked last year about the difference between Dell and Apple. Back when the personal digital music player was first coming out, I had to say that very specifically because Apple did such a good job of it, they just kind of became the icon. But when it was first coming out, you know, Dell had done a great what. They made computers. That's what they did. They made good computers. Apple, on the other hand, had, had captured this why. Whatever product they're making, they want to make innovative, creative, cutting-edge products. Like they kind of had this, 
this deep why, which is why when you get somebody who's Apple, they're like all the way Apple, right? They're like fully committed to the whole Apple brand because they didn't buy into a what, they bought into a why. And so when Apple came along with this iPod, this music player, you know, everybody bought it because they weren't, they didn't care what it was. They were, they were bought into Apple's why. Dell, I don't know if anybody knows this, but Dell released an MP3 player within like weeks of the iPod and nobody heard about it because everybody's like, why would I do that? Dell's a computer company. Like nobody didn't dawn on anybody. Apple is too because nobody was caught up in Apple's what? They were caught up in Apple's why. And so the, the great companies, the great churches identify their why. And Dell, Dell has a why. It's just not very marketable. It's to make money. Like we, we've, our why is to make a great profit, and that doesn't make a good advertisement. Buy our products so we can get rich. Like it doesn't advertise well. And a lot of churches struggle with the same thing. They have a why, but the why is to get big, to grow. But that doesn't market well. You don't go, come to XYZ Church so we can get bigger. Like it doesn't sound great. And so we, we focus on our what because our why is hard to identify, and we don't, or we don't like uh, our why. And so last year we started, you know, hunting for our why in our vision statement, which reads like this. Open Table Community Church is a community organized by and around the word of God to cooperate in the mission of God of furthering the kingdom of God. We accomplish this by gathering and worship together around a common teaching and a common table, by living in fidelity to Christ and to one another, and by working together to bring reconciliation to the four relationships broken by sin in, in the fall. So we spent some time kind of unpacking this last year. If you want to hear it, the, the audio is online. And we decided our foundational why is to be a community of God's people. At, at, the, at the root, that's what we're here for. And, and you might, there's a lot of other whys you could identify, like why are we here? Why the church? And you could say, well, to, to advance the name of Christ, you know, to, to share Christ with other people, to glorify God. Like, there's a lot of other whys, but honestly, those should be our whys even when we're not in church, right? Those are just how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to advance the glory of God everywhere. We're supposed to share people, with, share Christ with people everywhere. That's not just, so it makes you ask, so what is this? Why do we do this exact thing? Because if we're honest, most of the, most of the things we do at church, you can access on your phone now. You can get the greatest preaching, the greatest teaching on the planet right on your phone. You can join in with some of the most amazing worship in the world right on your phone. You can give on your phone. I highly suggest that. In fact, look at your phone and I'll show you how. No, you can give from your phone. You can join small groups on your phone. Like almost everything we do at church you could do on your phone except community. You can't have another human being look you in the eye and go, I see you. On your phone, you can't have somebody put their hand on your shoulder while you share your mess and and just sit with their presence and be with you on your phone. So we decided what the reason we have to do this is because community is important. We have to have another human being be with us. It's it's not good to be alone. But since we covered that last year and the recordings are online, I thought will be fun this year is to look at that second half of our vision statement, especially the four broken relationships. If you've been here long at all, you've probably heard me talk about the four broken relationships that were uh, damaged when Adam and Eve chose to step out from under the protective guidance of their maker and go their own way. These four broken relationships, and more specifically, how we work to redeem them is central to what we do here at Open Table Community Church. So for the sake of those who haven't heard me talk about this, 
Uh, let me give a quick recap. God creates everything that there is, ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. He, he creates out of nothing. And he puts the pinnacle of his creation, his man, that he made in his image, and he puts him in a perfect environment with no brokenness. So you've got this perfect human being in a perfect relationship with a perfect God in a perfect place. And into that perfection, God notices something is off. Which is ironic because there's no sin yet. Up to this point, the, the theme of the creation was it is good. And God made the day and it was good. And God made the plants and it was good. And he made the animals and it was good. Up to this point, everything has been good. And God looks at this relationship he has with this human being in this perfect environment. Everything's perfect. And he goes, this is not good. Which is weird because there's no brokenness yet. But something is not good. He says it like this in Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. It is not good. The first time these words have ever been spoken in creation, it is not good for us to be alone. It's spoken about loneliness. We're titling this series, Why Church? And even though, i got to tell you guys something. This is the first time ever I have not run my own slides and normally I botch it, and so I'm having the hardest time not turning around to make sure he's on. So if he messes up, he's back there. This is Brett, guys. He's amazing. Look at him or wave at me or something. I'm freaking out here. I got, I'm, I'm totally going ADD on the slides behind me. Okay, even though I'm going to spend four weeks explaining the function of the church, especially as concerns this, this four broken relationships, the, the real answer is right here in the first five minutes. This is really it. It's not good. For man to be alone. That's why, church, that's why we get together. Because in the very beginning, if you, if you were perfect and you had overcome all sin and, and you did the Lone Ranger thing, it's just me and God. As long as I've got God, I'm, I'm fine. And, and I can do fine in my relationship with God. If, if you were perfect, you were in a perfect place, you had a perfect relationship with God, you know what God's response to that would be? Not good. This is not okay. This is not okay for you to be for, for just to be you and me. That's not what, what you were made for. You were made for people. You were made to be in community. It's not good for man to be alone, which is a major bummer because, you know, obviously I am perfect. And I would love, I would love if it could be just me and God. No, I'm kidding. So the very first question about why church is right here at the beginning of the story. It's not good to be alone. But the reason I have enough material to fill four weeks about what the church is part in helping redeem the broken relationships is because things don't stay perfect in the garden for long. Once God laments the lonely state of Adam, he comes to him and says, I've got an offer for you. Adam, I have a deal for you. I'm going to make you a companion. She'll be beautiful and naked. That's important. <laughs> Sorry. I'm going to be in so much trouble. She'll cook. She'll clean. She'll leave you alone when the game is on. She'll carry your golf clubs if you want her to. She'll only talk if you want her to. She'll never spend your money, and she'll be great in bed. Adam is obviously intrigued, and so he looks at God and says, what's the catch? And God looks him right in the eye and says, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. And Adam says, what can I get for a rib? <laughs> I'm kidding. Ah. 
Guess who's sleeping on the couch for a while? We know the way it really happened. God made man. And he looked down and said, no, surely I can do better than that. However it went, we know that God fashioned Eve from Adam and brought them together. And she was, in fact, naked. Everything is now right. There's no more not good. There's no more alone until they chose to disobey. We know this story well. I don't want to spend time on the exchange between Eve and the serpent, but they're now on their own path. They've, they've sinned. They've launched out on their own. They're steering the ship. They have a modicum of, modicum of control, and they get to see what freedom feels like. And this should be good, right? They've thrown off the shackles of being bossed around by God. Except this freedom turns out to not be a good thing. It looks more like a breaking. It starts with the moment they ate the fruit. At the moment their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Immediately upon choosing their own way, something changes. They're no longer comfortable in their own skin. They no longer like who they are. They're no longer at peace with themselves. They, they feel the need to hide their true self. They look down and they feel shame. This is the first relationship that's broken, and it's a relationship with the man and himself, with the woman and herself. Suddenly shame enters the picture and, and changes that relationship. And although this was the first relationship to break, we're actually not dealing with this one until next week. But the next relationship to break follows immediately. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. God walks into the room and man's first instinct is to hide, to withdraw from this God who had made him, this God with whom he had had perfect fellowship. His instinct is now to withdraw from that, to hide from that God. Something in their relationship that that they had previously known is broken. Adam's response to God's next statement reveals the next broken relationship. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman who you, you gave me, who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. One chapter ago, Adam was singing this song when he saw Eve. He said, you are bone of my very bone, your flesh of my very flesh. Because of this, two are now going to become one. He's, he's sensing and feeling this amazing unity when he first sees Eve. He doesn't even want to think of her as separate from himself. The two shall be one. And now all of a sudden, because they've chosen this new path, this relationship where Adam felt this incredible unity, He's now creating separation. He's saying, it wasn't me, it was, it was her. He's pushing away this relationship that used to be a drawing toward. This relationship between the man and the other is broken. This key relationship between us and the other. This third relationship is between the human and the other human is broken. And we all feel that. We know that. And finally, as God has explained to Adam and Eve what life is going to look like now, I won't read it to save time, but he tells Eve her vocation is going to be hard. 
it's going gonna, it's gonna to be difficult. It's going to beat her up. He tells the man, your vocation is going to be hard. It's going to be like scratching for survival every day where you, you used to be able to just pick the fruit and eat it and live. Now you're, you're scrabbling to survive. And your vocation, and, the, and it's like the very creation. He was like, you're going to plant seed and thorns and thistles are going to come up. Like the very creation is no longer at peace with you. It's, it's, it's out to get you. And so the last relationship to, to break is between the human and the very creation, even our vocation. So these are the four fundamental relationships, God, self, others, and creation. They're broken the moment Adam and Eve disobey. If you've been here since the beginning, you've probably heard me talk about this five, six, ten times, because I believe that these are fundamental and formative and give us something to focus on as we try to heal the brokenness from the fall. Areas to focus on as we try to bring redemption and live out the redemption that Christ paid for. So for the next four weeks, we're going to not just talk about the fact that these relationships are broken, and that's why life is hard, but more importantly, how the church can help bring redemption to all these areas. And this week, after that lengthy intro, we're talking about the broken relationship between us and God. As we all know, this is the broken relationship we focus on most in church. We're, we're most familiar with the church talking about our relationship with God, with, with trying to bring redemption between us and God. This is the one we, we do the most. And although I'm not going to bring anything new to the discussion, I do want to highlight a few things. And what I want to start is to do a brief survey type look at the exact nature of this broken relationship. Because when, when things leave off in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have been kicked out of the garden. They're separated, and God even sets like a guard to say, you can't come back in. With God, no means no. But almost immediately, we find this next generation, Cain and Abel, not only in a relationship with God, but at at odds with each other about what that relationship with God should look like. How does worship with God happen? How do you make proper offerings to God? And, And so we see, even though this relationship between God and man is broken, almost immediately there's some kind of relationship still there. Something's still happening. A few generations later, we find this same God acting in relationship with another human named Noah. A piece of this exchange goes like this. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God, in close fellowship with God. So here's Noah Adam's seven greats grandson living in the same non-garden world that Adam lived in, only in close fellowship with God. And then Noah's six greats grandson, Abraham, has this exchange with God. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. And you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham departed as the Lord had instructed. This begins a relationship close enough that later in the Bible it says that Abraham was a friend of God. And then Abraham's four greats, grandson Moses, leads the Israelites out of slavery. And almost immediately immediately thereafter, God engages the Israelite people like this. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, give these instructions to the family of Jacob. 
Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the people of the earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give the people of Israel. So Moses sets these people in a new relationship with God, this God that, that broke off relationship with humans. Moses is now engaging a whole people group. And Moses gets so close in this environment that the book of Exodus actually records this. Inside the tent of meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. I know I'm throwing a lot of scripture at you. I'm covering a lot of ground. But all this leads me to this huge question. If something was fundamentally broken in the relationship between God and humans in the garden, if when God said, the day you eat of it, you will die, if Adam's fearful and withdrawing reaction to God's presence is indicative of all humans to come after, then what are Cain and Abel and Noah and Abraham and Moses and the entire Jewish nation experiencing? More importantly, if in a fallen broken relationship with God, these Old Testament people were able to encounter God the way they did, then what is the difference to being a follower of Jesus? Because if there's nothing different, then why church? Why wouldn't we all just convert to Judaism and and live like Moses? This is what I hope to dig into just a little bit this morning, and I really think the whole thing hinges on this scripture that's found in Jeremiah. It says, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is a new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after these days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep in their heart and I will write them or deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbor nor need to to teach their relatives saying, you should know the Lord for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness and will never again remember their sins. I will never again remember their sins. Now the key phrase here that I love is right there in the beginning. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a new covenant. This is the first time these words show up anywhere in the Old Testament. Nobody else has even hinted toward a new covenant. This is the only mention, a new covenant. Especially a new covenant when I will write the Torah on people's hearts. And then along comes Jesus in his final hours of life while he's enjoying this Passover meal with his disciples. And he takes this third cup that says the cup after the meal, which in the Jewish Passover feast, from time out of mind, for generations before Jesus, they've called the cup of salvation. And he takes that cup and he picks it up and he breaks the Passover liturgy and says, this is that. This is the new covenant. He pulls off, he finds this, this scripture from the Old Testament and he pulls it off the shelf and dusts it off and says, that thing that Jeremiah was talking about is now, this moment 
is the new covenant, which throws us back to Jeremiah. And we have to go, okay, this is a new covenant. So what's it going to look like? What was Jeremiah talking about? What is this thing that Jesus is pointing out? Because Jesus doesn't give details. He just chooses language, exact language. He says, this is that new covenant made in my blood. We celebrate it every week as we, as we take communion. Jesus isn't just being revolutionary. He's not just trying to start a new movement. He's saying this is that. That thing Jeremiah talked about 650 years ago is happening, and it's new. It's a new covenant. And not just that. He, he delineates it's not like the old one. It's not like the old covenant that Israel broke. Every herald that talked about Jesus' birth said this is good news. When Jesus starts to preach and do miracles, the gospel writer says he went about proclaiming the good news, which means it should be both good and new, something new. And I think to get to the roots of what is so good and new, we need to hear from Paul. The first piece of the good news for us, because I don't, is anyone here Jewish? I don't think we're Jewish. So the first piece of good news for us, is in Ephesians, because that, that scripture in Jeremiah most assuredly is speaking to Israel and Judah. He says, I will make a new covenant with my people Israel and Judah. But Paul says this in Ephesians, and this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promises or the promise of blessings because they belong to Jesus Christ. This is the first truly new thing truly good thing, is that we get to be included. Whew. That's, that's worthy of praising God because it hasn't always been this way. We haven't always been allowed in. So never stop being both shocked and incredibly grateful that we get to be here, that God opened the door for us because of Jesus. And although there's millions of blessings that I could highlight in this new covenant for the sake of Time, I want to land on one passage again from Paul, where he says, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. This may be the the biggest verse in my life, I don't generally do a lot of Bible memorization. Like, I don't, I don't have a problem with memory verses, but I'm a, I'm a context junkie. Anytime I try to quote a memory verse, I, it makes me curious as the context of that passage and how it fits into the entire biblical narrative arc. And so I, I don't do good at quoting single verses because I'm kind of a big picture, you know, narrative guy. And, but this is one I quote a lot. I quote it a lot. I find myself back at Romans 5 all the time. I am at peace. With God. I can't tell you how huge this is, and maybe it's just me, maybe you don't struggle with this, but I think there's an emotional tone to most relationships that, that most of our relationships are colored by this kind of underlying emotional color, maybe. Anybody had one of those people who you, you kind of really like them, but you're competitive with them, and as soon as they walk into your room, the room, something in you like changes? They Ever, ever have relationships like that? Or maybe it's not com- competition. Maybe it's suspicious. Maybe they have one of those people you have no reason, but when they walk in, you get kind of suspicious of them. You just don't know if you really trust them yet. 
Or maybe it's not that. Maybe they're just annoying. Like, and, and even when they walk in, they're not being annoying yet. There's part of you that's waiting for it because that, that sense of annoying has now colored the tone of your relationship. So as soon as they walk in, you're like, oh, brother, this is going to be annoying. Come on, be honest. Don't leave me up here by myself. Or do you have a, an emotional tone with your parents? Like when they walk in the room, something in you changes, and now you just want to please them, and you're totally comfortable with yourself two seconds ago, and they walk in, and the tone changes a little bit. And, of course, we have those people we like, right? They just have a warm tone. You don't even have to be doing anything fun. When you're with them, it's just fun because you're just, you're just comfortable with them. You're just at peace with them. I think, I think most relationships are that way. Well, so let me ask you this. What is the emotional tone of your relationship with God? Be honest. When you think about God, what, what's, the, what's the tone that colors that thought? What's the tone that underlies the way you, you think about your time with God. For a lot of us, it's guilt. For some of us, it's shame. For some of us, like a parent who has really high expectations and we're, we're really afraid of failing him. Maybe you feel suspicious. Maybe you feel unworthy. Maybe you feel this sense of anxiety, like if I don't do everything right, I'll miss out on a blessing. The emotional tone, the the picture Paul uses to talk about a relationship with God in light of whatever it was that Jesus did for us is peace. That's the word he chooses, peace. We have peace with God because of what Jesus did for us. And here's what I love so much about Romans 5 and and why we're here today as we talk about these broken relationships. The Greek word that Paul uses here that's translated peace in English is irony. Believe it or not, it's not where we get our, our word irony, but it sure sounds similar. Irony. And because I didn't want you to think I was making this up, I took a screenshot of my Bible software that I use when I study. Because I just want you to see this definition straight from the thing. Irony, probably from the primary verb, iro, which means peace. By implication, prosperity. Here are the definitions. One, peace, quietness, rest. Literal translation, set at one again. Peace is to set at one again. Peace is more than a laying down of hostilities. It's a restoration. To set at one again. We started this crazy little journey this morning in Genesis where this relationship was broken. This oneness was divided in two. Something was, 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 was shattered in this relationship between the people and their God when they made this decision. And Paul chooses this word. He goes, he goes because of what Jesus did, we're set at one again. When I think back about these people in the, in the Old Testament that had this relationship with God that we can't fully understand. And, and even though this relationship is broken, it, it feels like they walked closely with God. The only thing I can see that was dramatically different was the presence of sin. Cain and Abel fought with each other. Eventually one killed the other over how to deal with their sin. Noah was surrounded by sin. And the only thing that made him stand out was his resistance to sin. Abraham is maybe one of the most obedient people in the scripture, he not only jumps up from his home and follows God on a whim, but he's willing to sacrifice his own son. This guy obeys what God tells him 
to do. Moses' entire job was defining and identifying sin. And then he gets banned from the promised land for, for throwing a temper tantrum. He lost his temper. I've never understood that because I've never lost my temper. My wife would be toast, though. She's Irish, so I always say that because she's in the room shooting me the Irish eyes. Maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but Paul, knowing full well what Jeremiah said, and I will forgive their wickedness and will never again remember their sins, chose to say in light of that, when in, in explaining this new covenant, we have peace with God because of what Jesus our Lord has done for us. Noah and God were tight. Abraham and God were buds. Moses and God chilled out together on the regular. What else could possibly be both good and new about this covenant if not that God will never again remember our sins so that we can have peace with God, a setting at one again with God? I offer you maybe the toughest part of being a Christian is to believe that, to live like that's true, to live at peace with God. It's harder than you might think. Most of us have no idea how to be loved unconditionally. We want to earn some of it. And if we don't want to earn it, we certainly want our neighbor to have to earn it. We try to pretend like we don't like grace because it gives people too much freedom. It gives people too much allowance to do whatever we want. But I suspect the reason we don't like grace is because we want to feel like we earned it. We don't know how to do grace. We don't know how to be at peace with God. So how do we respond to this? This is the new covenant. Jeremiah described it and Jesus pulled that prophecy off the shelf and dusted it off and said, this that is happening is that. Paul makes it clear that it's because of what Jesus did for us that we have peace with God. Our part is faith. We simply believe that. And it's not as easy as it sounds. But in this series, we're not just talking about broken relationships. We're talking about the church. Not just open table, but the Church, why church? What's the church's role in this new covenant? Obviously, throughout history, the church has been the distributors of this message, mostly. As the church obeys the Great Commission, we go out and tell people about this new covenant. And admittedly, we discuss it a little bit differently here at Open Table sometimes, because we don't like to treat salvation like a finish line, right? Some churches tend tend to draw a line in the sand and and the whole goal is to just to get people across the line, right? We just want to get people across the line. Then we can say, whew, got another one. Like, and, and we don't really know what comes after that. The entire push and that, and that style of repentance, that get them over the line kind of repentance, isn't really what the word repentance talks about in the Bible. And the worst part is the, the language suddenly becomes exclusionary. You're in or you're out. You're saved or you're unsaved. You're you're the church or you're the world. And we, we speak in this exclusionary language. And although there is some truth to that, I don't find it super helpful. We generally like to follow what I've 
heard called the cruciocentric ecclesiology, if you want your big seminary word for the day. The cruciocentric ecclesiology, which just means the cross-centered church. So our goal is not to see insiders and outsiders, but rather all of us together trying to draw closer to the cross. And when we get off track and our arrows point the wrong way, we repent. The word repent means to turn. We turn back to the cross and, and we, we, we start our journey back. So we talk in terms of near and far and not in and out. We're on the same journey pursuing Jesus together. It doesn't believe I don't believe in a conversion. I absolutely do. But I don't like the idea of me thinking I'm in, you're out. I like the idea of me thinking we're chasing Jesus together. If I can get someone else to come on the journey with me and pursue Jesus with me, all the better. I'm not thinking in terms of getting someone over the finish line. What I do want to talk about today as we discuss how the church helps to bring redemption to the broken relationships between God and people is sacraments. Many of us come from evangelical backgrounds and we have some confusion as to sacraments. And and if I'm honest, most of the church disagrees on the nature and number of sacraments. I personally am what I consider to be a sacramentalist, which is just a fancy way of saying I believe what we do has spiritual significance. That what we do is is important. The church holds the Catholic Church, I mean, holds seven sacraments, six really, but that's a long story. Lutheran Church holds three. Most of the rest of the Protestant Church holds two. Augustine, although he ratified the two sacraments, said he recognizes potentially six hundred sacraments. I think in this way I'm more like Augustine. I, I believe something we do physically can have real spiritual significance and can change something spiritually. One of my favorite things about doing a wedding, I think, I think marriage is sacramental. We stand up before God and witnesses and we say some funny words and something very real changes. Like so much of the government now makes you split your junk when, if you decide not to do this thing. Like something very real changes because we do nothing but stand in front of God and say some words. That's what a sacrament is. It's when we do something physical and it really changes something spiritual. Something very real happens spiritually. James said if we confess our sins to one another, he'll, for, he'll heal us. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. You will be healed. I don't fully understand it. I don't try to understand it. I just believe when we confess, something very real and very spiritual happens. I don't get it. I just believe it. Well, the key sacrament concerning the broken relationships with God, of course, is baptism. Throughout the majority of church history, the the sacrament has been the entrance into the life of the church and the redeemed relationship with God, the peace with God. Is everyone here pretty familiar with the the sinner's prayer that we typically say? Anybody know when that showed up in church history? Early 20th century, the first time that shows up in any Christian writings at all. Didn't actually become commonly used until uh, almost mid-20th century, the kind of crusade movements, Billy Graham, Campus Crusade, when you had massive amounts of people wanting to come to Jesus and know, like, church to train and baptize them. They, they kind of started using this thing we call the sinner's prayer. Relatively new. For the majority of church history, 1,900 years, when you wanted to, to become a Christian, you got baptized. 
We, we see the example in the book of Acts. Philip is talking to this Ethiopian, and he's kind of explaining the scripture to him, and they're riding in a carriage, and the Ethiopian sees like a puddle in the ditch on the side of the road. He's like, hey, there's water. What keeps me from being baptized? I want in. And Philip doesn't go, hey, don't sweat it. We can just pray. He goes, absolutely. And they get down off the carriage, and they, they do a baptism right there on the spot. There's nothing wrong with the sinner's prayer. I don't think it's a bad thing to when you decide you want to accept Jesus to, to mark it with a prayer. I don't, I'm not saying the sinner's prayer is bad. I'm just saying it's new. It's new. For 2,000 years, people who have desired to say, I want peace with God, I'm, get baptized. That's, that's how they enter. So this morning, even though I don't generally do altar calls, I don't generally pray the sinner's prayer with people, I, I would like to offer you an invitation. If you've never been water baptized and, and you feel like you want to make a public profession of faith that says, I, I'm in, I want that peace with God, We're going to be planning a baptism service, and it'd be my extreme pleasure to baptize you into the people of God. Also, if you were baptized as a child, and if you're honest, you didn't kind of make that decision on your own. The church has classically done what they call a confirmation, where where you, you, you come to God and go, I was baptized as a child, but now I want to do it myself of my own will. They've classically called that confirmation. We can rebaptize you if you want. I don't have a problem with that. We can also do a confirmation service, but, but if, if you want to be in, if, if you're like, hey, I, I want to, to join, baptism is the way we do that. Either way, we're making plans, and if, you're, if something in you is sparked and you're like, I, I want that for my life, I, I want to I jump in, I want to be all in, I want that peace with God. Talk to me. I'd love to give you more info. For all of us, though, let me close by saying this. God loves you. It's funny. I was listening to worship, and this happens all the time. I absolutely had no idea what I was preaching on when we chose the worship set. I was trying to come up with songs that sounded good in my son's voice. So, like, that was as deep as I went. And then we're up here talking about, oh, how he loves us. An amazing grace and God loves you. He is out of his gourd, crazy in love with you. He's gone to every nutty extreme to show you that. If you're walking around hiding from God in the bushes like Adam because of your sin, guess what? He said he will never remember those sins again. Stop carrying them around. All he wants is you. You are at peace. If you screw up, get up and keep pursuing him. If you screw up over and over and over again, get up and continue to pursue him. He loves you. If, if when you think about your relationship with God, you feel something competitive, like he's the one I have to... Uh, you know, gain his approval. He's the one I have to please. He's the one I have to, you've got it wrong. He's on your side, cheering you on. When you get up, he says, awesome, keep going. He is your cheerleader. He is in love with you. Some people get nervous and they fear when we talk about grace and we tell people, God will remember their sin no more. They're just going to run around, do whatever they want. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't care. 
I'm not in this for behavior management. I'm in this to draw people to Jesus. I really believe we are invited into good news. Both good and new. I'd rather be surrounded with people who love Jesus and they're pursuing him in peace than people who are trying to white-knuckle their way through good behavior. And it means we're going to mess up. It means that as we do life together, there's going to be people who do things and you're like, you're not supposed to do that. And that's healthy for you to feel that tension and go, I, I have to trust that God does not remember their sins anymore. And that as they pursue this relationship with Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit's job to work on them and grow them. And, and as we all do life together and we sit together under a common teaching and a common table, that the Lord will change us. I don't have to be the Holy Spirit. I don't know, maybe that's the wrong approach, but I tend to believe that if we chase Jesus together, the rest works itself out. Everything we do, the table we gather around, the songs we sing, the scriptures we read, are all absurd if this Christian life is just more of the same. You get what you earn. That would be neither new nor good. But to believe that Jesus loves you enough to live the life you couldn't live and die the death you should have died and raise again from death so that you can have life and have complete peace with God. Your sins are forgotten. There's nothing you have to do. To believe that takes real faith. And I invite you to believe. Let's go to the table.